So why are we talking about church culture here at the mountain this month? Because this is not only something that we experience in this house, the mountain church, but also we come from different cultures. We come from different church cultures. In the first service, I did kind of a little bit of a survey. Like how many of you came from a, uh, raised in a Catholic background? Raised in the Catholic church. How many of you raised in a Baptist church? Anybody raised in a Baptist church? How many of you weren't raised in church at all? Uh, and you were, you were raised in a, a non-church culture growing up? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, there, there's a lot of different church cultures we find ourselves in. Uh, but, the, but the ultimate reality is, is that we, we're talking about culture, not so we can say, hey, this is going to be our culture and we're right and everyone else is wrong. But really the, the objective of this theme is for us to take what we've experienced in church culture and put it side by side with the nature of Jesus and ask ourselves the question, how do we become a culture that is like Jesus? That's our objective. Uh, and so while we're doing this, we'll talk about different things, like the role of a pastor, the role of us, uh, how we manage membership. In the first week, we talked about it, and we discovered that love determines membership. You, you're a part of this community because we choose love. Uh, and you might walk in with a completely different set of traits than the most mature person here, but you belong not first because you've become like Christ, but you belong because of the standard of love determining membership. That's what we talked about in the first week. In the second week, we determined and we discovered what exactly or how exactly God manages our behavior, how he approaches us in transformation and how he does it with grace and he does it with mercy and he does it with love, not by law and condemnation and guilt. So as we're asking ourselves these questions, we're gonna put up the nature of Jesus side by side with some of the conclusions or ideas we've had in our experience in church culture. And sometimes we'll find that some of the core values we function on are a little bit distorted or broken compared to the nature of Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. The, the moments I've realized in my life of nobody else's fault, but that I perceived that God was like this because of my experience growing up in church. But then I actually met God for myself and realized he's actually like this. It was a really beautiful day. Not because then I could go to the people and say, why did you tell me that? Be not at all, because maybe they weren't trying to say that. Maybe I only interpreted it that way. But then it's a beautiful moment because then I get to reconcile who God actually is versus how I thought he operated. And what better way to fix a relationship than to actually understand somebody, to know somebody. And not just know of them from somebody else, but to actually know them. See, now, if I were to try and have a relationship with my wife based on the knowledge that somebody else had of my wife, then I could have some real problems. I could have some real problems. So if I simply tried to be married to my wife and have an approach that was defined by somebody else's knowledge of her without me, her husband, actually getting to know her and finding out what she loves and likes and prefers, finding out how she communicates, I'd be in real trouble. So the goal here with our church culture journey is for us not to realize necessarily how the mountain's going to do it, although we are in this shared experience together, but for us to realize who is Jesus directly to me and how does that contribute to this culture? Because the Bible clearly communicates that it is the revelation of everybody put together that creates a real great clarity of who Jesus is holistically. 
So your part of what you see in Jesus is actually a blessing and a benefit to this house. And it's going to be different than what I see. But if we're all coming from the same spirit of Jesus, then it's going to be complementary visions. So what you know, Brooke sees or Nina sees or George sees or Jessica sees or Andrew sees, while it may be different, doesn't necessarily mean it's divisive. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay, so why are we asking ourselves this question? Because there's three things that are really important that we're going to discover today on exactly how do we build church culture. And there's three things we're going to talk about because I think there were three pretty important things. When it comes to culture, there's language, there's money or finance, and there's achievement. Can you say that with me? Language, money, achievements. These three things are significant things to discuss because they're a part of every cultural expression. What things do we celebrate? What things do we put up on a poster and say, yay, that's great achievement? What things do we do with our money? How do we save? How do we spend? How do we contribute to the need of all? And then the other element would be exactly how do we talk towards one another? How do we talk to God? Which is where we're going to start, and it's going to be prayer. We're going to start with this practice of prayer, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like for us to be of the culture of Jesus in our talking to God? Because really, if you break it down, there's a lot of different ways we've experienced prayer, but the basics of it is talking to God and listening to him talk back. And sometimes we do a great job at the talking to, but aren't super great at the hearing or listening. And, and sometimes, not everybody, but sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I can't judge your prayer language or life, but I can say that I have noticed in my life, it's easier for me to tell God what I think than it is to wait on him and listen to what he thinks. It's just easier because, you know, you're more in touch with your own stuff than you are God's stuff at first. Uh, so the, the first part here that we've got to unpack is exactly what is my approach with God? Oftentimes we see this as I pray when I need to get something from God. I pray when, when, to be honest, there's something that I want that I'm going to God, this higher power, to help me on. And sometimes it's extremely understandable. Sometimes it's health or healing. Sometimes it's broken relationships. Sometimes it's real stuff, you know? And like I'm really going to, I'm not asking him for a third car or a boat or a million dollars, but I'm really going to him because I need something, like authentically need it. So there's this idea that sometimes I go to God and I go to him with my will and I champion what I need, I champion what I want. And sometimes we think that this is the core competency or the core aspect of prayer, to go to God with our will and what we need and to really go for it. But I think this is a little bit of a miss for prayer. I think this is a little bit of a miss for us understanding exactly what the intent of language with God actually is intended to be. And that prayer is a whole lot more about discovering the will of God than getting our will fulfilled. There will be times when what you're praying for will take place or it'll be God's will. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's beautiful. But really, relationally between you and God, the what I want to build as far as an expectation here isn't that, hey, go to God, ask him for whatever you want, and you'll get it. Because that's not exactly accurate. It's not exactly accurate that I say, in whatever desire you want, go to God, pray for it, and you get it. Well, because we could see that that would just be an absolute nightmare, especially if two people wanted something totally different. If it was agreed upon, 
by me and or by God that whatever you pray, it's going to happen. Then if Andrew prayed something different than Jessica and it was in conflict, God's in real trouble. Or what if I just prayed for something bad? Or what if I prayed for something not good at all? Or something that was detrimental to somebody else? So with the, with the way God works with us in language and or prayer is that it's not through the means of simply whatever you want, you get if you come to me and ask for it. And so we're gonna, we're gonna jump into the word here and we're gonna discover exactly what this language design was for us between God and us and exactly how we should approach this thing in our motivation, in our heart. And so if you turn your Bible to Matthew 6, 6 through 15, it's a really beautiful place and it takes us to understanding exactly how this goes. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who's, who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And in a moment, it's gonna to get to the Lord's prayer and teach us exactly how to pray. And we're gonna get there. But there's two things I wanna say about this and two comments I wanna make. Have you ever experienced corporate prayer where somebody got up and they prayed in a public manner and, and they, they, they prayed a long prayer, a verbose prayer, a repetitive prayer. Have you been in one of these times before? It, okay, so there's this idea though, like in church culture where we practice prayer in a certain way that might not be perfectly representing how God's intended us for us to talk to him. Sometimes when we get up and we publicly pray, it looks more like us trying to help people understand what we're saying as a teaching or a sermon than actually talking to God. And so here's the problem, is that if you go into your own personal prayer time and you pray the manner in which you've seen others pray in public, you might not be understanding exactly what it looks like to talk to God. Because if you get up and you, you get in your closet and you just do pretty much what you see in like transition or in public prayers or, or whatever it may be, it'll be like, God, this, that, and the other. I see this, I see that. Would you do this and would you do that? And would you move in my life and people's lives? Okay. And now what? Have you ever got to that moment in prayer where you went through your whole, you exhausted your whole thing? You know, you did like the Greeks and you prayed a lot of things that you've heard or you've thought were good. And you're like, I'm throwing these things up there. I've heard them. I think I'm supposed to surrender everything right now. And I also think I'm supposed to ask for fire. Fire is probably a good idea right now. I've heard that before. God, come in fire. Uh, come in your spirit. Come in the fullness. Do something cool here. Uh, what else have I heard? What else have I heard? And so like we go through like our inventory, our Rolodex of like thoughts about like what would be like a cool thing? Like what would God do really cool right here? And all of a sudden you go through your whole Rolodex and like five minutes has gone by. And you realize that like, man, prayer is not a monologue. It's not a, a thing I learned, a script I learned and I go up and I say it and then I act it out and I do all the beautiful things and I get applause and it's over. Really prayer is, is really just meant to be, hey, let's learn how to have really beautiful conversation with God. Accurate, accurately communicating, ac accurately seeking his will, asking him like, what's on your heart? What do you think? And being able to hear him. You know, sometimes we think that that scripture where Paul's like, pray unceasingly, pray without stopping, is just impossible. 
Because we think of prayer as being something that I have to talk the whole time. So God, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray under my breath while others are talking. And then when I talk, because I can't cease praying, I'm just gonna have to talk prayers. But it's, not what, it's not what was intended to be created there. It was literally pray without stopping, meaning the manner in which you hear from God when you're praying, keep that antenna up all the time. So when you're walking and talking, you're just aware of God's word. You're aware of his nature and you're open to hearing from him at any given point. You never go into your prayer closet, pray, and then you're like, cool, that was, that was so dope. I felt the presence of God, feathers showed up, gold showed up. And then you walk out of your closet and you're like, cool, all right, shake that off and now let's go about my day. Because what just happened there is that you created compartments in your life. You created one compartment at church or in the prayer room where you were engaged with God. And then you created another compartment where you then went and went about your business. And what takes place is that this is a prayer life that is ceasing. This is a prayer life that stops at the entryway of the, of the prayer closet and it, and it is unintentional in hearing from God actively all day because praying isn't just speaking to God the right things or asking him for things. So much of it is simply hearing God talk to you. Prayer is a conversation. How good are we at actually tuning our ears to listen to the other end of the conversation? See, when we read this scripture, all of a sudden we see Jesus say, okay, now pray then like this in verse nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll pause here. See, he shows right away the perspective to have is one that is seeking the will of God to be established, not the will of man to be realized and the need of that will to be met. Do we have need? Yes. Is it God's interest to meet that need? Yes. But what we do when we put his will above our will is that we enter into a dynamic of trusting God. And that trust dynamic can be described as a faith walk with God, that I trust you, that as I walk with you, you will take care of me the same way you did the sparrow. I trust you that as I put your will ahead of mine and I pray for your will to be done, not my will to be done, I trust you as a good father. Because that was the opening line of this thing. Our father in heaven. We're not praying to a, a master. We're not praying to a, a law enforcer. We're not praying. We're praying to a father. We're praying to a father which has our best in mind. Now granted, there's a whole long journey of discovering our perspective of best to match his perspective of best. That's a really long journey sometimes. And sometimes we're not good at it. Sometimes we're much better at praying for our will to be realized because we know what we need. We know what we want. We are so in touch with our need. We're so in touch with our want. We're so in touch with the issues in our life, with the injustices of our life. We are in touch with these things and we can represent ourselves and we can go to the, we can go to the courts and we can plead our case. This is my case, God. This is my case, God. Okay, so now God's our judge rather than our father. If you go to him with your case all the time, you're simply going to him as a father. So you're missing the entire dynamic of what it was meant to be and intended to be in terms of prayer. 
And the first and foremost reality of prayer is that there is a relational connection of father and son or father and daughter, which changes the nature of how you bring your stuff. It changes the nature of it because you know the father has you in mind. You know the father knows your need before you even ask it. So you know these things. So when you get up and pray, and if I were to publicly describe or show you what it looked like, it would look a whole lot like this. Like, like when I start to pray, I don't even actually talk anymore. I simply just begin to reflect. The Bible talks about place your, he- your mind on heavenly things. I simply begin to read a scripture. I begin to reflect on God. I begin to think about God. I begin to create a stillness in my heart to hear from the Lord. I begin to invite him. I begin to invite him. And if I need to talk because my head's got a bunch of stuff in it and I need to really create some clarity there, it's just, God, I give you full space. I, I lay down everything else and I just listen to you, I hear you. And I just wait. And I just wait because I know my need. I know the injustice of my life. I know the problem of my life. I know the trial I'm in. So does he. So does he. But you know what I don't know yet? I don't know the perspective I need to change. Because maybe you're like me and you've discovered that almost every situation you've ever found yourself in, there was a perspective or an attitude adjustment that you needed to make. Maybe you were right. Maybe you had the full truth, but you were, you were carrying that truth without love. The Bible says speak the truth in love. So maybe you know, and you've got the rightness of this thing, but you haven't yet been anchored in love. So there's still that attitude adjustment. There's still that, that shifting of your heart that takes place. And you know, when you come to God in your rightness, you come to God in the truth of what you know and you surrender your will and the perspective of how you think this should go, you begin to find out exactly what the language of God is because he begins to speak to you about it. So all of a sudden he says things to you that are a little surprising, like he tells you to love your enemy. But you were so busy praying to him about your enemies not getting sleep because the sleep belongs to the righteous and your enemies aren't righteous. You see, it's this language that it's got, all right, God, what's your will, not what's my will? If my prayer life is simply about me exercising my will into God's powerful hands so that a powerful God can get my will done, I've reversed the order of this thing. It's intended to be that the power of God would rest on us in a place of humility, not in a place of knowing, not in a place of this is what I know, but in a place of, okay, God, I acknowledge you. And I acknowledge you in all your ways, acknowledge him. Right now, God, what I'm doing is I'm not trumpeting to you the justice of my behavior and my knowledge, but what I'm doing instead is I'm taking what I know to be true and the knowledge of what I believe to be true and I'm placing it on the altar and I'm going, okay, what do you think? What do you feel? What do you do? Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a contrite spirit in me because I know what I want and I know what I want to pray for. Also, when we begin to do this, we realize that our language begins to change. Our language for others begins to change. We pray for people differently. We approach their life differently. We approach our life differently. 
And all of a sudden, this cultural expression is completely based on the will of God rather than the will of man. There's going to be moments where you've, ex- you've shared church culture experiences where you've seen things done in a way you're like, you know, I just don't really feel like that's the culture of Jesus. And that's okay. That's okay that you recognize that. Because the church is comprised of people. And people are imperfect. People are going to make mistakes. I'm imperfect. You'll find them eventually, those imperfections. I haven't found them yet. No, I'm just, I'm totally just kidding. But you're going to find imperfections in me. You're going to find imperfections in one another. And you'll find imperfections in yourself. So the question isn't, what do we do to disqualify each other in these imperfections? The question is, how does a culture of Jesus really relate to God and to one another in these places of imperfection? So when I see a culture not perfectly resemble the nature of Jesus, instead of disqualifying people and or separating myself because it doesn't meet the standard, I move towards, I move towards those people. I moved with compassion towards them to see healing, to see breakthrough, to see a covering, to see an encounter with God that would create the whole, whole expression of who he is. And we begin to see this in prayer and we begin to see that this, this significant shift that prayer is so much more about discovering the will of God, asking him continually. When you get in the prayer room, when you get in those times of praying to God, saying, God, what do you think? Because I think I know what you think, but I also know that I don't know all of the things you think that I want to know. I know you, and I long to know you more. And the fullness of your suffering and the power of your resurrection. I want to know you in all of these aspects. The Lord's Prayer goes on to talk about some really beautiful things. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a beautiful language there of what this posture looks like to pray and to be. Pray and be. Pray and be. And I want to encourage you guys to study it, pray on it. I know you know the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure of it. But it's a really beautiful place to just make an adjustment to approach. The the next thing here is money. Okay, so how does a culture like this, like a pastor, and how does a community relate to finances? Well, there's some myths that we've discovered. There's some misrepresentations at times we've discovered And what we've seen that the idea that God will make you rich if you tithe is just not a reality. And it's a little bit of a disruption to hear it because so many of the times we think about the scriptures that talk about tithing and talk talk about giving offering and the blessings and the prosperity that come from it. But you can see throughout the word and we'll bring up some scriptures here and you can see throughout history that it is not a one for one exchange that if you tithe it does not necessarily translate to wealth financially. Now, there are some beautiful blessings. There are some beautiful promises on giving that lead to prosperity, but that prosperity may not look like financial wealth. There is a promise in the word that if you tithe and if you give and if you're faithful in these things, he'll provide according to your need, but that need doesn't always outline millions of dollars in the bank. I don't know if you've recognized or measured this, 
uh, practice in your life, but there's a lot of us that tithe and there's not a lot of wealthy people. So just doing the, the math or doing the this, therefore, if this, then that, if you just consequentially figure this thing out scientifically, we'll all figure out that tithing and offerings and giving generously doesn't necessarily lead to you being rich. And why is this important? It's important to bring up because one, I never want you to think that if I'm talking to you about giving and being blessed, that I'm promising you wealth at the end of that rainbow. Because if I'm creating a model of incentive and reward stuff here for you being obedient to something God's communicated, then I'm misrepresenting the heart of God. I'm misrepresenting the nature of Father if I tell you that by being obedient, it's going to lead to you being rich. So let's open, up, uh, let's open up our scriptures here. Malachi 3, 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and, there, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts, then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Oftentimes we look at this scripture, we go, look, look, I give and I get a bunch in return. Look, look what happens. I tithe and God fills my storehouse. God provides for me. Everyone looks at me and thinks, wow, the delight of the Lord is on these folks. But what you see here is that you see this encouragement of God to people and you see it throughout the word that if you give to be rich, there's a broken connection here. The responsiveness of our heart, we have two options, give out of obedience or give because of the incentive we see at the other end of obedience. And if we tie ourselves to give so that we can be rich, we've got a broken motivation. If we tie ourselves to give to God because we are being obedient to his voice, then we are drawing near to him in connection. And it's about his voice, not about the outcome of being obedient to his voice. So I've got some stories on this. I had this one story before where this guy gave a guitar in church because God told him to give his guitar. And there's a long story short, ultimately he gave his guitar and then got two or three back and then gave a bunch of those and then he got more back and he ended with like 20 guitars or something. God spoke to him and told him, give your guitar. And he was faithful to give each time to what God's voice was telling him. Now there was others around him that were like, you know what I would like is I would like two guitars instead of one guitar. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to copy what that person did over there. And I'm going to give it because I want two guitars. Now what's the difference? One did it because of the incentive of more. And the other person did it because they were responsive to the voice of God and they were obedient in that responsiveness. See, giving that is to receive the reward that somebody else got in obedience is a broken connection with God. It's reward and incentive-based giving, and it was never meant to be the intention of our culture of giving. Our culture of giving was never intended for us to have like a legal binding thing on it that I give so that I can get more back. The Bible talks about it, it's better to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The identity of our giving culture was never intended to be an incentive and a reward-based model. And if we give so that we can have more, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. And what's the point? 
did God ask you to give a guitar? What's the point? Did God ask you to give a house? What's the point? Did God ask you to give a mite? What's the point? What did God speak to you? What is God moving your heart to do? That's the reward, obedience. Not a lot of us see that or even can truly like be content in that because sometimes it has you giving and getting nothing back. And what's more exciting than giving a guitar and giving nothing back is giving a guitar and getting two back and then giving those two and getting four back and giving those four and getting 16 back. See, the idea is that there's nothing wrong with the outcome of fruitfulness of obedience to God. There's nothing wrong with giving and getting a whole heap boatload back. But the motivation of our heart is being responsive to the voice of God in our life. Not to get 16 guitars. See, if we're drawn to the 16 guitars and then we reverse engineer it to exactly figure out how they got to the 16 guitars, it's no different than practicing a business model that has yielded a ton of financial success. The giving culture of God is not about us figuring out and hacking the system so that we could have a greater profitability on the things that we currently own and possess. God was never meant to be like a hack to the, the, uh, the, uh, a hack to the stock market. God was never meant to be a hack to the housing market. God was never the, it was never his intention for him to create for us this expectation that, well, if I want more than what the traditional means of investment and earnings can do, then I'm just going to hack the system like this and I'm going to copy the behaviors of what somebody else has done in obedience so that I could do it out of a motivation for more. Now, maybe God told you to give a guitar the same way he told that other person to give a guitar. Awesome. Beautiful. Then do it. Because you know why? God's telling you to do it. He's moving your heart. Or maybe you're being moved to give because you realize you're greedy and you don't like sharing. Then do it and the reward will be your greediness being broken in half. Not that you'll get more from it because if you give to break greediness and you're just doing it to get more, you're not actually going to break greediness. First Timothy, let's, let's jump to a scripture here. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness... With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we will have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. What is this saying? It's saying, what is your heart being moved towards? What do you love? What do you desire? Do you desire, do you desire more of an item? And thus you practice what somebody else practiced because of a love of obedience. If I'm drawn to wealth and I'm drawn to riches and it defines my behavior, and I then begin to apply the power of God to try and meet that very culturally worldly need or desire inside of me. I misunderstand the entire concept of how this culture works with God. And this culture with God is not intended for his ability to provide according to your desire and your will. 
So if I go to God simply to access his power for my own desire, I misunderstand the whole dynamic. I misunderstand and I misrepresent exactly what this thing is about, which it's not about me coming in with my desire and supply and accessing a great supply of power to meet my desires, but it's about me taking my desires and saying, God, okay, now I want your desires, so I'm gonna trade this. And now whatever your desires are, I believe that you are powerful enough to supply to meet those desires in your will. Many times we miss the concept of our will being transformed before we start asking for our will to be done. When Jesus walked up to the fig tree and then he cursed it, see what we, what we gotta understand, because then he goes, listen, say whatever, whatever you say in prayer and believe it, it will then happen. And he also talks about moving mountains in the same language. This is spoken to the people that are following Christ. This is spoken to the people that are the dynamic and the understanding that it is the prayer inside of them that says, your will be done, not mine. That then says to a fig tree, huh? be shriveled up and die, and it shrivels up and dies. Or says to a mountain, move, and it is moved. So what's the difference? When does the will of a man get uh, fulfilled in prayer? I'll say it like this. When the will of the man matches the will of God. So what's the paramount importance? It's for our will to be transformed into his will. So I would encourage this before you pray for something in anything, finance or life, ask him if it's his will. Ask him if it's his will. Now, sometimes you know it's his will because there's a great clarity in the word on what it's his will. And so you've had the dialogue and the conversation. But I'd say even then, be open to hearing God speak to you. And be open to hearing God say to you, this is actually my will. And if you understand the will of God, if you're seeking the will of God, then your prayer life and your language will make a whole lot of sense, especially over your finances. Have you been faithful to labor? Have you been faithful to give? And is your situation really rough? Okay, okay. Can you trust God? Can you trust God? And can you say, God, what is your will? I wanna see your will done. Obviously, God, you know that I want to see this situation work out differently than it is. But I really want to know how you think, feel, and act. I've seen moments and times in my life where the trial wasn't really resolved until I learned to find patience and peace in the middle of it. I've seen some storms endure until I learned to take a nap in the middle of the storm. Because sometimes we perpetuate our own storms. Sometimes it's in our old form that's creating a storm around us because of the way we're treating things, approaching things, or the way we're acting. So sometimes the key is not some kind of circumstantial thing needs to change, but really it's just that your will needs to change and the pattern of your behavior needs to change. And how do you find that if you're so busy praying old man prayers for your will to be done? It's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be really hard. See, I don't know what a righteous prayer in your life looks like. I don't know what a prayer of his will in your life looks like, but I do know that I can't go wrong by encouraging you to seek the will of God in everything. I do know that if I encourage you in all of your prayer and all of your finances to seek the will of God, look for it and find it and be open to realizing that you are not expressing the will of God. 
be open to realizing that maybe in your finances, there's a will that God has intended for your finances and you're not actually acting like he does in finances. I don't know, but I do know that I want you and I to be open to the idea that I am not expressing his will yet and I so desire to express his will. And my prayer language is first gonna be about me being capable of expressing his will. So I'm praying prayers of humility and prayers of grace and I'm looking for God. I'm going before him and saying, okay, God, I'm looking for you in this and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how this feels or supposed to feel, but I'm looking for you. I'm looking for your heart. I'm looking for your mind. I'm looking for your attitude. I believe this is so important. And the last thing here that I think we should talk about is achievements is I think that there's this idea that if we, uh, if we attend church and if we give and if we do our best to do right, that, that these acts of obedience will lead to success or will lead to achievements. And how does the church culture uh, contribute to this? Well, we contribute because we essentially say, okay, this is what it means to have great achievement in community. And we put up the posters or we put up the people and we, we trumpet them and we say, this is, this is the personification, at least in some regard, of what it means to be a successful or a high-achieving Christian. And, and this is how we contribute to it and this is how we perceive it. You've perceived what is basically the model Christian throughout your life at some, in some way or another. You could probably think of the people... You could probably think of the different cultures you came from where this type of person or this person was like applauded and celebrated. Because whatever we celebrate, that's what we are saying is the watermark of achievement. So when we're in this community, there's this whole understanding that we've really got to root ourselves in and it's in Philippians 4, 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't that beautiful? You know what I like about that? I like that because we quote 13 all the time. When we're trying to do something great, we're like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. <sighs> Come on. When we're trying to overcome and have some great victory in battle, or like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Come on. I got a testimony. At the end of this testimony, I'm going to be able to say, Philippians 4.13, he told me this, and then I did it, and I did something great. Look at what we did. And so we can trumpet that achievement in church culture is the other end of a testimony. I used to do drugs. Now I don't do drugs. I used to have one home. Now I have nine. I used to have this much in my account, now I have this much in my account. I used to cuss, now I don't. Whatever, whatever the testimony is that we've heard, I used to be sick, now I'm healed. These are beautiful. These are mountaintop moments where it's just like, yes, that is so obviously something we celebrate and we say yes to. But really what Paul's saying here is that actually, achievement is not just in you being capable of being great in victory, but actually... What is the power of doing all things through Christ who gives you strength? The big part of it that's missed is actually being like Jesus when everything's falling apart. I've learned how to abound and I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to be up. I've learned how to be down. I've learned how to have a full belly and I've learned how to be hungry without being hangry. 
I'm still learning that one. I'm praying to God daily. Oh, God. Somebody's like, hey, you should fast the other day. And I was like, oh, I'm a pastor. And, and fasting is like the worst idea ever. I'm talking full fast, like just water. I, I like these fasts where you're like, I'll fast TV or I'll fast media. I like these things because they're not too hard for me. But the water one, water only, I'm like, oh, wow. I remember I did a seven day one once. And this is the most I've done, seven days of just water. And 12.01, I had a Pizza Hut delivered to me. And it had every meat they had on the menu, six layers of cheese. It was like a $30 pizza. I was like, I'll have all of your meat all of your cheese. <laughs> like Ron Swanson, when he goes to a breakfast place, I'll have all of your meat. He's like, no, I don't think you understand. I mean, all of your meat. <laughs> but it's, it's what it, where is the might of God truly seen? What do we celebrate? Well, it's not just in the, hey, I was here, now I'm here, but it's in, hey, I'm actually right here and nothing's good. And yet, Strangely enough, I have perfect peace. I really trust God. I have godliness and I'm content in that simple nature of godliness. That's a super tough place to be. Paul had to learn. He said, I've learned. I've learned a secret. I could do this. I can completely be uprooted from everything I know, have nothing, be thrown into prison, and I can still have joy. The early church, the most powerful salvation winning entity in the church was that those that were Christians didn't have much incentive to be Christians. In fact, all the studies and all, all, every, just there wasn't an incentive. In fact, every, there was every disincentive to being a Christian. That if you were a Christian, you lost your home, you lost your wealth, you lost your status, you might have even lost your family, and then probably at some point even your own life. There was this much incentive, worldly, to being a Christian. And yet everyone that was becoming Christians, or the large majority of them, had more joy and more peace than those that still had intact their social status, their wealth, their families. And people would look to the people like Tim that are like, Tim, you've lost your whole family. You've lost all of your wealth. You lost all your status and you're happier than I am. You have this true sense of joy inside of you and it's actually nonsense. Can I be a Christian? That was the reality. Now, were these people not tempted to, to like break? No, I'm sure they were. Were they tempted not to have a bad attitude or lose their connection to God? I'm sure it was like their soul was being chafed and they were like literally being tormented at the idea that, man, it doesn't need to be this way. And yet at the end of the day, they learned the secret that when everything's robbed from you and stolen from you, they can't take your peace and joy in Christ. Sometimes we wonder why we're in the middle of a trial that's stealing everything from us. God didn't design it. 
but he can definitely design a work in the midst of it. And what's the work that he can design in it? It's that you don't need any of these things to remain in order for peace to remain. It's the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It's the joy that bubbles up from a connection with God. I remember my wife and I, and I'll finish with this. I remember my wife and I, we gave um, a car. Actually, at this point, we've given two, and they weren't really super nice cars, not to like mislead you. I didn't give Teslas or anything like that. I gave a Nissan Sentra. It was green. It was, I called it the Green Mile. I loved it. And it was a stick shift car. It was beautiful, and I loved it. And, uh, but I gave it because I was in the Philippines one day, and I was, I, I, we were on a missions trip, and I woke up, and I heard God say, walk with me, like real clearly. So I got up, and I was like, you know, just, <laughs> you just do whatever you think like is supposed to happen in the moment. So I'm like, clearly he wants me to walk with him right now. So like, I, I didn't even have to, I, I had students in the room, so I didn't have to put clothes on or anything. But so I just got like a sweater on because it was cold in the morning, and I just started like walking, just like in the dark, because it was like really early. And I'm like, all right, God, like, what are you talking to me about and stuff? And so he just talked to me about some things and he spoke clear to me to give my car because he wanted me to walk with him over the next season here, yeah? And I was like, oh no, we were about to have a kid. I was like, oh no, like that moment where you're like, oh no, uh-oh, can you tell my wife? <laughs> and... So my wife and I, we went on this journey together. We're like, hey, I really feel like I'm supposed to give my car up. And she's like, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I, I really, you know, and this is not convenient and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so I gave up my car. We, I sold it and I gave the money to the church. And <clears throat> I did this and I, I would like to kind of give this testimony that I've gotten four cars since then or all this kind of stuff. Not, nope, no, no, no. What actually happened instead was that we had one car and about a few months later, I tore my ACL. The transmission went out on our only car. And about two weeks before we had our first child, Brixton, we had to borrow my brother-in-law Levi's truck, which was a lifted truck, freshly torn ACL, fresh surgery on crutches, having to get into a lifted truck, nine or 20 months pregnant, how old? <laughs> very pregnant wife and I couldn't drive. It was not allowed when I was still on my pain medication. So my wife has to drive a monster truck. And even though the, the, the thing went down, my wife, she is very, still very hard, you know? And so it was just this hilarious thing. And my wife the whole time was like, so wonderful. She's like, so you heard right, right? Like, <laughs> I was like, baby, I can't tell you this, this makes sense. I can't tell you this is, this is under, like any of those kinds of things. And, and all of these things happen as a result of afterwards. And it was just so interesting to me, the beautiful prosperity of it was that I learned that was what actually all of these life situations, having no car, torn ACL, uh, two weeks before baby's born, fully pregnant wife, like all of these things, they, they didn't really move the needle for us. And, and it's hard to see that as being the, the, the lesson of prosperity, but, but the lesson of prosperity that I think oftentimes is missed is that prosperity is not a financial increase, but it's a state of mind. 
And really, it's a choice of residency no matter what your situation is. So it's not just a positive state of mind, but it is an active connection to God. No matter how things change around you, that never changes. If your commitment to God can remain unrelenting, unyielding, and non-unstoppable, then you've learned maturity with Christ. The beauty is not in God changing your situation, but it's in you always being able to be connected to God no matter what your situation is. And trusting his posture more than your posture. A great example of this before we finish is the, the disciples on the boat. And I go to this one a lot. His posture was one of rest. Their posture was one of sheer panic. We're about to die, we're about to die, we're about to die. Now, if God's sleeping in your life, it's not because he doesn't care about your situation. It's because he's trying to teach you how to have rest in the middle of a storm. So just trust that his posture is actually really good to just go, okay. (laughs) Have you ever tried to sleep when you're in full anxiety mode? It's actually worse because you just start getting mad about the fact you can't sleep. And then the madness and the anxiety, you're just like, you're, it's over, it's done. You just can't do anything about it. And there's this real difficulty to, to learn to trust God in the abased places. 